And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who was at the Father's side. He has made him known. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Father, we ask your help in understanding this profound miracle uh, that you would send your son to not just appear as flesh, um, to seem like flesh, but to become flesh, uh, to become a human being. Um, But more than that, uh, more than understanding, we ask for vision. Uh, that we might see your glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Um, verses 9 through 13, they challenge us to know that there, to, to see that there are some people who don't see it, um, who don't receive Christ, and we want to be people who receive you. And so help us this morning do that. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. One of the most famous stories in the Bible, uh, and really, famous religious stories, period, is the story of Moses and the burning bush. Um, If you're not familiar, this is the story of how God called Moses to be Israel's deliverer, asking him to return to Egypt after 40 years and rescue his people from slavery. Uh, I'll read it for you, Exodus 3, uh, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned and set aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Growing up hearing this story, I just thought the burning bush was like a parlor trick, you know, that God just did to like get the attention of Moses. Uh, But there's more going on here, uh, because what is a burning bush, the burning bush? It says, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And this is not how fire works, right? Uh, Fire requires fuel to burn. Uh, That's why you have to keep putting logs into a fire pit. It depends on stuff to keep going. Uh, Even the sun, which we're told has been on fire for four billion years, burns because it is fueled, and people will worry about it running out of fuel. 
And so what does it say about God that he would appear to Moses as a fire inside a bush that was burning but not being consumed? In appearing this way to Moses, God was communicating two things about himself. First, like this special fire, God needs no fuel to burn. His glory burns of itself. He is self-existent. And yet, God chooses to appear to Moses in a bush. He could have appeared next to the bush or above the bush or completely independent of anything, just a floating fire and spoken from that. I'm sure that would have called Moses' attention. It would have made more sense to us, maybe. But God revealed himself from a truly burning bush. And these twin ideas are reaffirmed later in the chapter when God tells Moses his name. So in verse 13, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, I am the Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And so God gives his name in two parts. First, he is Yahweh, which is Hebrew for I am. That is his name. Who sent you? Tell them I am sent you. Now, this phrase will be super important all throughout the Gospel of John. Uh, Jesus will repeatedly use this phrase about himself. But here in Exodus, revealed for the very first time to a person, the name I am affirms God's self-existence. God is a fire that needs no fuel. Just like we talked last week about the Word of God, in the beginning was the Word of God. It just was. It's always there. Next to God, being God, the Word is self-existent. And yet, God is not only named Yahweh. He doesn't stop there in Exodus 3. Say also, I am Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So this self-existent God, the God of the entire universe, the creator and sustainer of all things, he doesn't need a people to sustain himself, to keep him going, to fight for him, but he has chosen freely, graciously, to identify himself with a small, tiny people, the Israelites, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Like the fire in the bush, the eternal everywhere God chose to dwell locally with Israel. This crucial passage in the Old Testament is a foretaste of the incarnation. When Yahweh, the great I Am, appeared not in a bush, but in a man named Jesus. In John 1, we have the self-existence of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The Word is God, creator, life, and light. That was the lesson from last week. But then, this same Word... The word that before just always was, the word was, this word becomes Jesus of Nazareth. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the self-existent God, the God who transcends time and space, now inhabits time and space. 
reveals himself in a particular land with a history, a culture, a family. He has a human body and a human mind. Like the burning bush in Exodus 3, God has rooted himself. C.S. Lewis, uh, in his book on miracles, calls the incarnation the grand miracle. He says the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. They say that God became man. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. And the incarnation is the grand miracle because it's so much more than all the others. It's so much more than the burning bush where God dwelled for what, like maybe an hour, maybe two? In the incarnation, in Jesus Christ, God has chosen to dwell with man as man forever. There's no going back. He is resurrected as an embodied human being. He ascends to heaven as an embodied human being. He lives now as an embodied human being. It boggles the mind that the eternal Son of God, very God of very God, right now has a body with a beating heart and hormones and twitching muscles and all the rest. He remains God, which throughout John 1 is clearly top of mind for the apostle, but he is also fully and truly human. My plan is to finish today by focusing on the good news of the Incarnation. But first, I'd like to name a number of ways that God's incarnation in Jesus challenges us, weirds us out, challenges some of our ways of thinking. Uh, There's a reason that the incarnation is unique among world religions, and that's because it's kind of off-putting. It's not an idea that we would come up with. Um, I think a lot of people uh, in, even, even neighbors, friends, like if we sat down with John 1, uh, if they would be okay with that, if that's all we said. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He created all things, and He's the light. Uh, his life is the light to all men. Like, okay. But the fact that the Word becomes Jesus, and we get kind of squirmy about it. Uh, the writer Christopher Watkin talks about the fourfold scandal of the Incarnation. First, the incarnation is scandalous because it's material. The word became flesh. A few translations will change this to something like the word became a human being. And that's fair because flesh in scripture means more than just a body, but it never means less. Right? You cannot be human without having a body. Jesus had a body, and his body did all the weird, gross, ridiculous things your body does. And this is scandalous for modern people because we honestly spend most of our life pretending we don't have bodies, right? Until we just can't pretend anymore. Awareness forces itself on us. Our day is just chugging along until all of a sudden we're very hungry or very sleepy or we're injured or sick. Right now, sitting in your chair, you feel important and dignified and attractive. And then someone tells you that you have something on your face and it's all over, right? (laughs) Because you're a body. You feel like a monster. Oliver O'Donovan has this great line about however much we may ignore it. Nevertheless, when we take off our clothes to have a bath, we confront our bodily existence. All pretenses are gone when you're getting ready to take a shower and your pants are too tight at the ankles. It's over. (laughs) Right? Bodies are ridiculous. 
But the incarnation reaffirms what the Bible has always taught, that bodies are essential to being human and they are good. The incarnation challenges modern people who are always trying to ignore, alter, or transcend our bodies. Bonhoeffer wrote, while we exert ourselves to grow beyond our humanity, to leave the humanity behind us, God becomes human. And not just so he could die in our place, though that is part of it. He became human so he could be resurrected too, so he could redeem our bodies and remain human forever. So first, the incarnation is material. Second, the incarnation is historical. The word became flesh, which means there was a before and an after. A, and, and that is new in religious terms. Before Judaism and Christianity, most understandings of history were either chaotic or circular, right? There wasn't this idea that there was a story with a beginning, middle, and end. There's an arc, a direction. It's not a cycle, like some religions might have us believe. It's not chaos, it's not meaningless, like atheism would have us believe with the sun just burning out and and there would be no one left to remember us. It's a story. And until very recently, human years were measured to this moment, right? Um, With the dominance of Christianity, we had B.C. and A.D., before Christ and after. Uh, Books now say common era, but we all still know what happened at year zero, right? We're still centered on this momentous event, And that reminds us that human history is going somewhere, and God is taking us there. The incarnation is historical. Third, it's particular. Not only did the word become flesh, it dwelt among us, and that us isn't you and me, right? He didn't become flesh and dwell among us. He, this room, John is talking about himself. He's talking about a group of people at a specific time. The incarnation has a context. And we live in a time that wants to strip religion and faith of its facts, right? Reduce it down to abstract universal principles. And there's a prejudice against specific religions because they're localized, they're provincial. And we're against anything that is time-bound. If there's truth in a religion, it must be underneath all the cultural trappings. So we're trying to look under, like below it. Ultimate reality must be pure, abstract, and universal. And so that's why John 1, 1 sounds good, but John 1, 14 is harder to receive because Christ did not become an abstract person, right? He became a particular person. The Word of God, who is himself the eternal source of all truth and goodness and beauty, he became a first-century Palestinian man. He spoke Aramaic. He was a carpenter's son. And so in the same way that the incarnation affirms our bodies, it also affirms everything else that comes with being human, culture, language, place. And that, in a way, resonates with our love for diversity. It's good news. But it also challenges our distaste for exclusion because he came to one place and not another. Jesus doesn't claim to be one of many saviors. Uh, There have been Christian... Uh, sects and and heresies that have talked about Christ coming in different ways to different groups of people. But that is not the lesson here. Jesus came once, and he is the only Savior. Redemption is only available through him. 
So it's a universal salvation available to anyone who believes and submits to this very particular man as the Son of God. Jesus came for everyone in the world, but he did not come to everyone in the world. The end of Romans 16, Romans 1.16 has always bothered me. Romans 1.16 is a great verse, and we always quote the first part. We don't quote the second part. Uh, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why It bothers me. Why does Paul just like leave it? And just everyone, just leave it at everyone. Why does he emphasize that? But that's always been God's plan of salvation to save the entire world through the children of Abraham and specifically the one seed of Abraham. He is Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Exodus, he says, this is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered for all generations. So faith is universally available to all who believe, but it's not universally malleable. Other religions do not have access to the revelation of God apart from the Son of God, and that only comes through Jesus of Nazareth. The incarnation is historical and particular. Jesus is a Jew, and salvation is from the Jews. Last, the incarnation is personal, because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Not glory of a power or a force, but as a son. For John, the word is a son, a person. It's interesting that John 1.14 is the last time that John refers to Jesus as the word because he doesn't have to anymore. He just calls him by his name and his name is Jesus. The creator of the universe, the omnipotent power that sustains it. It's not a force. It's not a principle. It's not a list of truths. It's not an indiscernible experience. It's a person, the only son from the Father. Now, why is this scandalous? Uh, that the incar incarnation is material, we can understand how that's hard. It's a little off-putting. Uh, Marcion, who's one of the earliest heretics from the second century, um, he called the incarnation a disgrace to God because it would be beneath the deity to take on a human body stuffed with excrement. Which is... I see his point. I understand that. Um, but God being personal, why is that hard? And it's hard for the same reason that all your other relationships are hard. With something impersonal, it doesn't matter how I treat them. Like a, take a Siri or Alexa, right? They are not people, even though I talk to them. I never feel bad yelling at Alexa when she doesn't hear my question correctly. If I yell at Maggie, though, for not hearing my question correctly, I'm going to feel bad about it, and more importantly, she's going to feel bad about it, right? Because she is a person. And that's why some people prefer God to not be a person. Sin, guilt, and shame are only real if God is personal. If he's just a principle or an idea or the name we give to the laws of the universe, like a name we give to the voice assistant in our phones, then God can't judge us. I remember talking with a family member uh, who's really into New Age ideas, and so she's always talking about the universe, about how blessing comes to you when you live in line with the universe, how the universe can help you if you send out good thoughts and manifest things. 
Um, and I remember saying to her once, you know, the way you talk about the universe is pretty similar to how I talk about God. Only God is a person. And she very quickly, it surprised me how quick she was with it. She said, oh, I don't want God to be a person. I don't like that. And I asked questions for a bit, but eventually I told her, you do want God to be a person because only a person can love you. The universe can't love you. Laws of nature can't love you. Abstract principles can't love you. Power can't love you. Of course, it is true that because God is personal, you and I have to face the reality of our failures to live up to his glory. My failure to honor him as God, person to person. Sin, guilt, and shame are real because God is personal. But Paul reminds us in Romans where sin abounds, grace superabounds, and that's because God loves us. If God is a person, and more specifically, if God is this person in the Gospel of John, the one we see that is full of grace and truth, that means he loves us and he can forgive you. God is a person. Why, though, the incarnation? Because God's personal prior to the incarnation, that's not something new. So if he could love us before the incarnation, why was it necessary? And the incarnation has two purposes in John 1. Here's the good news. It's revelation and redemption. Uh, John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And how did the word, the only God, make him known? By becoming flesh, verse 14, and dwelling among us. So that now we have seen God's glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, you can think about the prologue in John. If the opening verses are a reflection on Jesus and Genesis, these verses are a reflection on Jesus and Exodus. Exodus opens with God telling us his name is Yahweh, God of your fathers. Uh, but it ends with another important scene where Moses asks to see the glory of God. You remember this? This is after uh, Israel rebelled and created the golden calf. And... Um, God agrees to forgive them and go forward anyway. And in Exodus 33, verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, uh, Moses asked to see the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I show, will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And Yahweh said, behold, there is a place by me where you can stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Uh, later, similar to the burning bush, where later he talks about his name, Exodus 34, when this actually happens, it's Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaiming the name of Yahweh, Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, 
but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. In Exodus, Moses could not see the face of God, but he heard his name. And he was a God merciful and gracious, full of grace and truth. In Jesus, we finally see the face of God. We are able to see his face, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The incarnation reveals God to us in a way that surpasses the revelation of Moses. And by believing what Jesus reveals, we are redeemed. That's what we see in Paul, where, right? Salvation is by grace through faith, through believing. We see God when we see Jesus, and seeing God in Jesus redeems us and restores us to our original glory when we believe that Jesus is God. If we refuse to believe, we remain in darkness. But if we have eyes to see, we are saved and made children of God like Jesus. That's verses 9 through 13. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Saint Athanasius is one of the main theologians to read on the Incarnation. He's the one who's worked it out, um, was a leader at the Council of Nicaea. And it was cool to me, uh, reading for this, how Athanasius directly addresses a question that often comes up in the story of God. We just did the story of God. And a lot of times people will ask, what if Adam and Eve had repented quickly? And that was a question that I have. Would that have been enough? Like if they had just quickly said, oh, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And Athanasius says no. And his reason is because the problem of sin is not just guilt, but also corruption. Repentance stop, would stop them from sinning, but it wouldn't restore them. And he has this great analogy to explain this about people as portraits of God. So humans are created in the image of God to display God's glory like a beautiful painting. And our glory was modeled after the glory of God's Son. But with sin, Athanasius says, the image was corrupted. Uh, the painting was ruined, obliterated through external stains. And what could be done? Well, the commissioner of the paintings refuses to throw them away. And instead, he sends the subject again, the model of the original painting, his beloved son, to sit again so that the likeness could be redrawn on the same material. And so in Athanasius, like in John, revelation and redemption are held together. And that's the entire purpose that John writes this gospel in chapter 20. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Of course, Jesus does way more than just sit for a painting. When he takes on flesh, he's more than a model for me to emulate. If that's all the incarnation accomplishes, I am still lost because I cannot be like Jesus. It's not enough that he is material, historical, particular, and personal. It's not enough that the world became flesh. It's what he does in the flesh. And what does he do? In John 1.14, he dwells. And what does it mean that he dwelled? It means a lot of things. 
But here there's a direct allusion to the Old Testament where he dwelled, he tabernacled with us. It's the same word, the same Greek word that uh, the Old Testament uses. A lot of commentators will translate this as the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And so now you see this revelation of God coming in full circle, just as God's glory descended in fire at the burning bush, sanctifying the ground so that Moses had to take off his shoes, just as God's glory descended in a cloud and filled the temple and sanctified it and made it holy, so now God's glory in the world descends and becomes flesh, sanctifying us. Flesh doesn't change him, it changes us. God's presence always sanctifies. And in the case of the incarnation, his hallowing presence renders the body a temple. He is the new temple. In him, even suffering and death become something holy. A Ukrainian theologian writes, the world made human experiences his very own by transforming them from within. That which we experience as violent, involuntary, tragically purposeless, and fatal for an ordinary human being was made voluntary, purposeful to salvation, and life-giving in the ministry of the Word. The Word, who is above suffering in his own nature, suffered in his humanity and obtained victory over it. C.S. Lewis writes about the importance of dissension. In the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down further still to the womb, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature he has created. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must also disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass weighing on his shoulders. And so the Son of God does not just come to sit for humanity's repainting, but he enters into humanity, becomes both subject and painting. Like God in the burning bush, he needs no fuel, but he fuels me. In Christ, I now can burn without being consumed. He sanctifies, he lifts me up from corruption, he gives new life. As the eternal son joined to him, I become an adopted son, and that's all through faith. John 6, 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the will of God, the Father. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And so the question for all of us today and every day, will you believe in Jesus Christ, the incarnate God, this morning? Despite all the scandal of his body, his history, his particularity, his personhood, don't try to look behind him to see what faith really means. Don't try to look underneath him for some impersonal core. Don't look in front of him for a faith that is like progressed onto something better. Look at Jesus, full of grace and truth, and believe in the God who sent him. Let's pray.